Good afternoon. Welcome to Across the Pond, episode two. Cool. So it's episode two. Welcome back to Across the Pond, um, our, our weekly podcast. Um, we're back, Barry. What do you say t- to that? It's super exciting to be back. I think a lot of podcasts don't get past the first episode. So to make it to episode two is a huge achievement. So oh, very yeah, chuffed, very chuffed. Oh, that's amazing. And yeah, I, I mean, I just want to say thanks as well to anyone who sent feedback through. Um, I, I say kind of from both of our sides, we, we got uh, quite a bit of feedback last week and it's been overwhelmingly positive. So uh, yeah, I mean, just from, from me, a, a massive thank you to that. And anyone who's given kind of recommendations on how, can, how we could approve, uh, that is definitely something we're looking for as well. We newbies to this, so we kind of want to get better at it every episode. Definitely. I want to echo that from my side. The number of voice messages and the number of uh, voice notes and all that I got given were, were incredible. And even though a lot of you are biased, we really appreciate it nonetheless. <laughs> Absolutely. Cool. Well, let's delve into this second episode. We've got jingles this time. The week that was. All right. So for the week that was, uh, I'm actually going to hand this one over to Barry to deal with the first thing. I mean, it's been a busy week, uh, but what was the one thing that you picked out to chat about? Yeah. So the story that has been fascinating me has been this whole story around WeWork as a company. Um, and it's it's kind of a crazy story. I can see the novel on the way. I can see the movie on the way. I can <laughs> see all of the stuff on the way about how crazy a story it is. Yeah. So let me try and give some context. Then we can discuss it, Chad. Um, so WeWork is a giant company based out of New York. And what they do is they do co-working, right? So they offer space as a service, as, like, as they like to call it. And uh, you can go and rent one desk or two desks or 80 desks and you can flex up and down on a monthly basis. And basically they take away the pain of having to have your own office space, your own lease, your own building, etc., and let you rent from them on a monthly monthly basis, right? So it's a fascinating company. A company's done very, very well, supposedly very, very well, grown incredibly fast over the last few years, and has become a giant behemoth all around the world. In fact, they just opened their first uh, two locations in South Africa this year. Right. So they are growing as fast as they can, um, and they've got a, like, a few hundred locations. They've got thousands and thousands of people working in their, in their space. And um, we're seen as a very, very strong company, a typical Silicon Valley Uber type company where they try and scale and grow as fast as possible. Right. We, we came to sort of mid-2019 and they decided, cool, we need to take some money off the table. And they started looking at an IPO in the States. Yep. And like Chad, you'll know, once you start looking for an IPO, you have to start releasing information that was previously private and previously sure. just for the investors themselves. Um, and all of a sudden, when they started releasing financial information, they started releasing information to the public to start preparing for this IPO. All of a sudden, a lot of the skeletons in the closet came, came out, yep. and uh, it was clear that the business was not as strong as we once thought, right? It was that typical Silicon Valley model where they were losing hundreds of millions of dollars every single quarter, um, trying to scale as fast as they could, and uh, had huge demand, had lots of people in their offices, but were losing money on every single location. So the, the, yeah. p- the per-unit economics just weren't working. Um, and so there was a lot of drama. On top of that, their CEO, well, the ex-CEO now, um, was a bit of a lunatic, and he was one of those guys who um, was just selling the story to investors and selling this this vision of being this global company. But on the other side, he was doing shady things like moving leases from his own personal name into WeWork, oh, right. or things like he he had bought the trademark for the for the We company, 
and then he had sold it to his own company for like six million dollars or right. something silly right. so like shady things like that and so the board kind of came together and they said cool this guy is a harm to the company because number one he's nuts if you listen to any of his press conferences he's like a <laughs> like a he kind of feels like a hippie in a way right. and he talks about consciousness a lot and he doesn't really feel like your CEO that you want to put trust in for a large sure. multinational company. Yeah. So the board kind of said, um, cool, we're going to kick this guy out and so we're going to put someone else in place. But the problem is that their whole, their whole valuation dropped by up to 70%, right? So they were at something crazy like $80 billion and it's come way down because the per unit economics of these buildings doesn't really make sense. As a result, SoftBank, which is a huge Japanese um, investment arm um, from the Japanese um, bank itself, they put in billions and billions of dollars in the beginning rounds, um, and so they are the major shareholder, and they've got the most to lose if WeWork goes belly up. Yep. And so what they had to do was they had to come in, I think they injected something like seven or eight billion US dollars into the company to try and keep it alive, to try and make sure that things happen and this IPO actually happens eventually. So I just thought it was an interesting, interesting discussion talking about how like I, I for long thought there's been too much money in Silicon Valley and a lot of silly ideas are getting funded crazily and yep. people don't seem to care about profit. All they care about is growth. And this is an example of when that potentially could go wrong. Um, and a giant company is not making any profits, is losing money at a scary rate um, and investors keep throwing money at them. So Chad, I don't know what you think about that as, a, as an economic business model. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, in terms of its business model, as you say, I mean, it, it seems like a fairly simple thing. They essentially lease out big buildings and sublet them to corporates and individuals. Um, so, you know, make them accessible to people who, uh, you know, I, I'd say quite big in the sort of startup space and, uh, you know, businesses that are still building uh, in terms of getting getting that flexible office space. Um, but 100%, uh, when I first saw this story, I was quite shocked as... I mean, as you said, they were kind of gearing up to list. Everything was going well, and uh, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, now that those skeletons are coming out of the closet, uh, you know, what 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 went wrong? And uh, I mean, I think the most concerning here is that four and a half thousand employees are currently at risk of losing their jobs. Yeah, it's 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 really a crazy story. It's it's hard to believe that it's real. It feels like a novel. It feels like uh, Theranos all over again with Elizabeth Holmes and the chaos that happened behind the scenes at that company. And what was really interesting for me was that when I was in New York a couple of weeks ago, I had a lot of discussions with people in New York because this yeah. is seen as one of New York's biggest success stories. Like when you think tech startups, everything happens in Silicon Valley, and New York is trying to challenge Silicon Valley as an ecosystem. And that was this was one of New York's like pride jewels. Yeah. And so when I was chatting to a lot of people in New York. They were, they were expressing their, their disappointments and kind of their angst about it. Um, because as you say, this company should exist, right? The idea is solid, right? Yep, and the, the, it, it, needs to, it needs to exist and it will exist. Um, and we work in the best possible position to make it happen because of their brand strength, because of their, their investment, and because of their scale around the world. And so I, I kind of think that this is going to blow over and they're going to figure out a way to make it profitable um, and make it work because in my mind I don't understand how it couldn't work yeah. but at the same time it's crazy that one CEO's decisions or one person's decisions could put this giant thing at risk which has huge implications across the whole of the world. Yep, hundred percent. And uh, in terms of in terms of SoftBank, I mean, I saw they they're kind of now knocking on the door of Mizuho, which is another uh, big Japanese bank, as you say, asking for for more funds. And uh, and the question is here, as you say, if they inject enough capital in, now that they've stripped out the the rotten apple, um, is there actually a, a solid business model there and uh, good quality tenants um, currently in in these buildings? I mean, I definitely know in London we've got we've got loads. Uh, you know, you say there's two in South Africa. I 
haven't actually counted the number of WeWork uh, buildings that I've seen so far. So definitely on the side of the planet and uh, and of course, as you say, uh, the US um, and, and sort of the rest of the world, um, a really big uh, company that's grown really quickly. And uh, I think it's a, a very big concern if uh, if this is close to the end for them. No, without a doubt. And actually, when, when I was in New York, we met with WeWork itself. And they claimed, I'm not sure how true this is, but they claimed <laughs> that they are the second biggest property owner in New York. Wow. And that, that sounds crazy, but at the same time, they've got hundreds of locations there, and maybe it's true. I mean, they wouldn't have said it if they couldn't fact check it. So, yeah. like, it's it's a huge, huge organization. I mean, when I was thinking about it, when we were in the, I was at the WeWork here in Johannesburg a couple of days ago, and we had a chance to meet with the, the GM of WeWork South Africa. And he was talking about how the Rosebank building they've just built here, they opened it to the market, and they were looking for, I think, to fill 2,000 desks, and they were sold out in a matter of weeks. Right, so the demand is crazy, and so surely, if you're selling out in a matter of weeks, you must be doing it at an, at an economic like model where you sure. make money, right? Yep. So, so I I think it has to exist. Whether it's going to be WeWork or it's going to be some other company that takes the reins, I don't know, but the fact that uh, like it can be burning from the inside as such a strong company ready to IPO just kind of puts Silicon Valley into perspective and this whole growth at any cost mindset, which I think is quite dangerous. I think we've kind of we've kind of forgotten what it looks like to build a profitable business from day one, yeah. right? Yeah. Kind of what how people think about startups these days is we're going to grow to X amount of users, we're going to get as much growth as possible, and then we're going to turn on profitability down the line. Yep. A lot of people are forgetting about the fact you can actually can build a business, and I would argue you should build a business <laughs> by having a profitable business model from day one. And sure. I, it doesn't sound it doesn't sound crazy. It sounds like common sense, but when you look in the market, you don't see it. Hundred percent. I think organic growth is is always kind of the most uh, sustainable and uh, and yeah, most kind of risk averse way of of doing it. So I completely agree there. If we look at another story this past week, which I suppose is, is kind of on the same theme, really, uh, South African Airways, the uh, national carrier of uh, of South Africa, eighty five years old. Um, a basically a mass strike going on for the past uh, seven days as we record this podcast. I mean, I actually overheard a uh, basically an interview on Bruce Whitfield's Money Show uh, with one of the board members, um, who is kind of put a, a rough estimate of a minimum of 52 million rand losses per day. Now, obviously, they can't quantify this um, more than that in terms of uh, customers who are obviously looking at this strike happening and are holding back on future bookings. But just in terms of the the, the flights that are landed, uh, well, basically the flights that are grounded, not taking off in the kind of current running of the airline uh, that's his sort of a minimum estimate i mean basically to put a bit of context on uh, you know how how it it's got here if we look at if you look at saa over the last 10 years they've had sort of nine ceos a lot of mismanagement a lot of corruption um, in terms of the bailouts from government if we look at the last three years uh, government has handed them 20 million sorry 20 billion rand um, and basically are now at a now at a stage where where government can't afford to do that anymore um you know south african government obviously has had a lot of corruption uh, in itself as well um and are now actually holding back those paychecks so uh i mean what do you make of this uh what is it feeling like that side yeah it, it looks like a mess it looks like a mess and it has looked like a mess for a long time now yeah. i think saa has been one of those state-owned enterprises that has been the brunt of a lot of the, <clears throat> the cynicism and a lot of the the concern about the country 
Uh, mostly because, uh, as you say, those economics don't make sense, right? And yeah. the fact that these bailouts have to keep coming and coming and coming is not a good sign at all. But also, it's reputational damage for South Africa. Definitely. So your your national airline is a big part of reputation. And for a lot of tourists who are coming to the country for the first time, that might be their first experience with your country. 100%. And if your national airline is, un- is under stress and is not like operating the way it should, it really paints a bad picture on South Africa and affects yeah. tourism and affects all the other spending that you want from foreigners in, in the rest of the the rest of the place yep. so it's a really dangerous place to get things wrong right um, and so reputation is not good for South Africa and uh, I'm not quite sure what the solution is I'm, I'm really hoping they find a way to turn it around but when you read story after story after story after story about how, how things keep getting worse yeah. I'm not sure where the where the savior comes from and I think I think to, to add on that I think if the strike continues for much longer I think it is very very possible that we, we might see those doors close um, unfortunately I mean, you know, kind of hearing stats of, so basically uh, the the reason for these strikes is uh, obviously wages. Workers are looking for 8%. uh, The current proposal in place is 5.9%. Now, I mean, looking at this, uh, I've seen that South Africa's inflation is at its lowest point in the last nine years at uh, 3.7%. I mean, is 5.9% a reasonable sort of proposal when your inflation rate is sitting at 3.7, I mean, certainly looking at the the past roles I've had in the UK, uh, increases are generally inflationary if there's no sort of other um, factors there. You know, you haven't got a new role, new responsibilities, those kinds of things. Is this a reasonable proposal at face value? Um, or, you know, do you think there's other things under play here? Yeah, so it's it's really hard to answer that question. I, I don't know what reasonable looks like because... Um, to be honest, I don't think that labor unions are looking at inflation really as a marker. I think they've got some idea in their mind as to what's a fair price for their for their work sure. and under whatever working conditions they're working under. 100%, yeah. And so it, it, it might look somewhat reasonable on the, on the face of it, but I, I don't have any information to, to make a comment on that really. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that's what's what i what i don't like about it is how long it's taking to negotiate yeah right so i i understand you're always going to have negotiation you're always going to have to come to some sort of compromise that's how it works um but to but just uh, what i want to see is i want to see the negotiations sped up and come to some sort of um agreement so that we can move on um and uh, i'm not sure what the right number is i don't think anyone does sure, no, um, it'd be easy if they did yeah yeah definitely, um, definitely. but yeah that's kind of, those are kind of my thoughts yeah and i think i think making it a bit tricky as well is uh, kind of a bit of a catch-22 um, is you know based on the solvency and liquidity of the business at the moment uh, the board is really cons- concerned at the moment about uh, reckless trading as we know that companies act legislation that uh, you know actually has personal implications for directors involved um, and pushing that envelope a little bit further on this negotiation uh, definitely that that's a piece of legislation that will need to be considered uh, for for this airline. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we'll have to watch this space and, and see what happens. Hopefully they figure it out. 100%. Um, cool. I know we've already covered two things, but let's give a quick high level over some of the other things uh, in this week. Obviously, as we spoke about last week, the UK general election is ticking on. Um, I What came to my attention was the party called Green, the Green Party. Um, and uh, to be honest, it's actually been going for a bit of time. As far as I know, there's one seat in Parliament. Um, and as far as I know, there's kind of a total of 650. So at the moment, the representation there is not big. Um, but in recent time, we've seen a lot of protests, uh, an organization group called Extinction Rebellion. I've certainly seen it in London disrupting the streets, uh, basically putting 
blockades and in one case even getting on top of a tube um really hold, forcing on top the, of the tube standing on top of the tube sure. one, one of the members actually you know basically jumped on top of the tube um which which wasn't uh, wasn't a great idea because you know the train uh, and the the tube system is is actually a, a sustainable way of travel in terms of uh, you know it's it's people who are not driving cars it's people who are looking to be more yeah. um, you know care about the environment a bit more so so that was an interesting one but i mean i'm i suppose my my wider question here is uh is it time for the world to have a green and uh you know sort of um eco-friendly political parties i mean their promise is to get the uk to a zero carbon footprint by 2030 is it time for something like that i i'm always a little bit skeptical about um political parties who who base their entire platform on one particular issue right yeah so I'm, I'm always a little bit skeptical about that because it's much more complicated than that e- even if they say they can achieve what they want to achieve once they're actually in power they often find that it's a lot harder to get these things through parliament and, and into action than, sure. than you need to be right yeah. so i'm always a little bit skeptical of that i think it's i think it's a trend we need to be seeing from all political parties right i i've been a firm believer that we should be seeing carbon credits and some sort of free market solution to try and tackle climate change for a long time yeah. but that's an that it's an economic decision that needs to be made by by the by the country itself and by the world i find i I don't think you're going to have a green party that's going to come in and campaign on just one issue like that and actually get through i I think that you need to have more nuance and understand that even if you you know promise zero carbon by 2030 that's incredibly ambitious right and so for, for, for people who are looking to vote for them they look at that stat and they wonder is it actually achievable Yep. Um, is it actually possible? And while they might agree with the cause and they might support the support the party, I don't think you're going to get majority through that. I think that needs to come from an economic decision-making place where we say, cool, as a country, we're going to decide that climate change matters and it really does yep. and we should be trying to fight it yep. and then put policies in place to try and incentivize the right behavior. I don't know what you think, Chad. No, I completely agree. Um, in terms of each of the, the campaigns, I, I definitely think it would be nice to, even for the major parties, see some sort of thought and consideration about this. I mean, this last week, Dave, Sir David Attenborough, um, the renowned, you know, nature documentary, uh, you know, basically, uh, he him coming out saying that the world is changing their habits on plastic, which is a positive thing to see. Um, and, uh, you know, just in terms of, of, of kind of where we where we getting. I mean, I think it's definitely important for us to, to start thinking about uh, our sustainability and, uh, you know, the level of, of, of eco-friendly, um, you know, we are, we are to the environment. I mean, I think, I think if we look at something like the, the, the water shortage in, uh, in Cape Town, uh, which happened sort of two years ago, it's one of those things we, you know, we're always talking about climate change. We're always talking about, uh, you know, water, save water, be water wise and that kind of thing. And I, I feel like until we get to that stage where we're at a crisis, people are not really thinking about it. Um, so I think it would be it would be good, as you said, to to get some of those parties just to, to bring it into their standard policies anyway. I think on the same theme uh, in this last week, there was a debate between the, the Labour and Conservative Party. Um, and I, I thought you would find this one quite interesting interesting from an ethics point of view because i know you know barry has uh, as as we spoke about the last time is studying ai uh, from an ethics point of view too and and both of our courses um focused quite heavily on uh, on ethics um basically uh, one of the tw- official twitter accounts of the conservative party during the debate they actually changed their name their twitter handle to fact check uk and were essentially dismissing um all of the points made by the labor party um kind of uh 
portraying themselves as an independent fact-checking account. I think that's quite misleading. And uh, I mean, don't you think, given kind of all of the data s- scandals we've had in the past and how, uh, you know, the role that social media plays in, in news, um, don't you think this is quite a uh, below-the-belt move? Yeah, it sounds like it. And it also sounds quite stupid, really. I mean, I don't know how they thought they were going to get away with it. It's yeah. quite transparent when that is, is happening, especially during a debate. Do you have any sense of what they were trying to accomplish with it? I know you say trying to refute the Labour Party's... Um, ideas but yep. but why do they think this would work and what were they trying to accomplish with it i mean good good question i mean i think i think they were really just trying to pull the wool over people's eyes by um as as i say dismissing what what labor's cla- labor's claims and uh, essentially putting compliments to all of the points of uh, the conservative party so i mean i definitely think as you say it was it was a stupid move and i mean given today's day and age uh, you know why would you even try and do something like that there's been a backlash from twitter themselves um kind of as a bit of a warning actually um that any verified account who you know changes their name uh, you know there may be implications so definitely a silly move um and i think just from the purposes of 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 this podcast i think anyone who didn't know of it um you know I, we we're certainly not taking sides but i think it's it's definitely something uh, to be brought to the fore and, and everyone should be aware of it Definitely. I think the timing as well is, is a bit ill thought out because yeah. Twitter's in the last couple of weeks has really been going hard on politics and they've 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 banned political advertising on their platform and they've taken quite a tough stance against political um, messaging and that kind yeah. of stuff. So uh, yeah, I think it's dangerous to to alienate a huge platform like Twitter, which has such influence around the world. Yep, hundred percent agree. Cool. Let's move on to our next insert. Stuff I found interesting. Oh yes, the jingle is in action. The jingle is in action. <laughs> the jingle is in action. Um, I'm going to again hand this one over to Barry to uh, basically let us know what he found interesting this week. I believe there's a prop involved. There is a prop involved. <laughs> I brought it with me. So for those who are watching on video, hopefully you'll be able to see it there. Yep. Uh, it is a book <laughs> called Leonardo da Vinci, The Biography. Uh, it's written by Walter Isaacson, who is my favorite biographer. He's done, he did the Steve Jobs autobiography. He's done a Benjamin Franklin one. He's done a lot of famous, famous people and does an incredible job at writing up on their stories. So I literally, I picked this up a long time ago, probably about a year ago, and I've been slowly <laughs> moving my way through it. Um, and I wanted to bring it up because... It Leonardo da Vinci for me was someone I knew very little about about a year or two ago, and I've learned a hell of a lot about him in the last little bits, and he's even more fascinating than I thought. So about two years ago, I kind of knew him as the guy who painted the Mona Lisa, right? That's that's the name I knew. That's I knew the Mona Lisa. I knew nothing about why the Mona Lisa was special. I didn't I didn't know much about art itself. I just knew he was known as this artistic genius, right? Then I've had the, the the privilege of having two two of my ex girlfriends be very very big into art history. What a and privilege! So, um, through what a privilege <laughs> it was great, and uh, I learned a lot about art through those two relationships, um, and got a got more of an appreciation and more of an understanding of what makes Leonardo da Vinci so powerful. And then I picked up this book, and it really changed my whole view on him, right? So he he's kind of known in most people's eyes as a painter, as a famous, famous painter who's done incredible works all around the world, and his pieces are worth millions and millions of dollars, and they are like priceless pieces, right? 
Um, and that's kind of how everyone sees him. But you read this, this biography, you get a real sense that he's so much more than just a painter. He was an engineer, an architect, a metal worker, a philosopher, a writer, a poet. He's one of the most creative people I've ever had the chance to read about. Yep. And he did all of this stuff hundreds of years ago when this stuff wasn't really in vogue, right? So the number of inventions that he's come up with that he couldn't make happen back then because engineering just wasn't ready yet, but then happened 200 years later is terrifying. It's it actually, he feels like a prophet in some way by this, the kind of stuff that he predicted and the kind of stuff that he designed. The best known example of that is the helicopter, right? So in one of his old, in one of his old notebooks, he's got a full-on drawing and design for a fully working helicopter that couldn't be built at that time because things weren't ready and the engineering wasn't possible. But 200 years later, it does, it is ready and it happens. Um, and so that's one example of many that kind of permeate through this book. So it really is a fantastic book that kind of looks at what does this kind of genius look like? Um, what kind of struggles and personal struggles did he have to go through? One of the biggest things was that he was a gay man and back then it was impossible to be a gay man. Sure. So he talks a lot about the personal struggles that he went through living in a world that didn't accept him um, and were kind of living off his genius. So they weren't seeing him as a human being. They were seeing him as this painter or as this engineer or this genius. Um, and how that impacted him socially and impacted him psychologically. So it really is a fascinating look at what an old school genius looks like, how creative and how curious he was, um, and that he was so much more than just the guy who painted the Mona Lisa. And so that's yeah. why I wanted to bring it up. I would encourage anyone to go and check it out. He really is a fascinating historical figure. Um, you read the book and you kind of are amazed by what he's done and how little people actually talk about him. Yeah. Um, but he's a fascinating character. Amazing. I mean, uh, the world was lucky to have him. I'd, I'd, I'd certainly say. And uh, and how how sad that you know he couldn't he couldn't be himself uh, in the age that he lived. Luckily, uh, you know, we we kind of moving uh, moving out of that phase, which is which is great. But I mean, do you think there are any kind of modern geniuses of the sort of stature or kind of nature of of people like Da Vinci anymore? I mean, I don't know if it's just you, but I, I certainly feel like. Uh, civilization is has you know kind of going a little bit backwards in terms of these these geniuses who who um, you know revolutionized the way that the world worked in so many different ways. Yeah, it's it's something it's it's the natural first question that you ask yourself when you read a book like this, right? Is is where is today's Leonardo? Yeah. Like who who what who is the name that our grand great 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 grandchildren have been talking about in a few hundred years? Um, I don't know. I, I, the kind of the sense that I get is that in today's age, we are we are told to specialize in one thing, right? Yeah. The route to success is becoming really, really good at one specific thing in one niche, and we dedicate our entire lives to being the best in the world at that thing. I find it hard to see a world see today someone who's going to become a genius in four or five different like yeah. areas, like Leonardo did. And obviously, a lot of that's because the world has moved a lot since then, and there's a lot. There was a lot more to discover back then than there is to discover now. So that's one factor. But I think that we've got so focused on specialization and we kind of we kind of say jack of all trades and we kind of stigmatize the person who's generally good at a bunch of things that I don't see how another Leonardo is going to come into being. That being, that being said, um, no one saw him coming, right? Yep. So yep. you could have someone popping out of the woodwork at some stage. And these, and these kind of brains only come one every hundred, hundred years. So who knows? Who knows? Absolutely fascinating. Uh, let's, let's hope we do have uh, somebody uh, of that sort of uh, level 
uh, coming through the ranks at some stage. Uh, the next one is something that I actually actually brought up uh, coming from The Crown. Uh, so season three was released this last week. Very exciting. Uh, we've been waiting for it for the last, uh, you know, sort of two years. So basically when uh, when myself and my fiance moved over to London, we obviously had this uh, fascination with, uh, you know, the royals and uh, the monarchy. And uh, this, this series, The Crown, um, is, is an incredible, incredible series done in a really, really good way. Um, it's entertaining and at the same time uh, is, is educating really um which, which which i find fascinating have you watched any of the the crown i've i've actually never heard of it chat so when you put it on i was quite excited because i'm keen i'm looking for a new series so please tell Amazing. me tell me what the crown is about and what it's what it what it tries to accomplish so basically it's entertainment it's entertainment at its core really it's a, a series that is essentially telling you the story of the monarchy um essentially all the way from how queen elizabeth ii became queen it wasn't her path her natural path of progression but but she she is there now um and essentially takes you through her life and we are kind of now at the sort of middle ages um you know so that uh, as she's moved on which is where we are now in in season three but just in terms of the kind of amount of work that they put in to get something that is authentic something that feels real um is is absolutely incredible they would kind of take people on who were in the royal palace uh, at the time and really through every single interaction um kind of get the level of detail of is this the way that they would have said it or you know how how would they have said it who would have been standing where all of that type of stuff um it's absolutely incredible and and really realistic um so i'd say you know kind of the the amount of work they've put in to to achieve that is really um groundbreaking and uh, and, and really rewarding um sorry barry don't you think it's amazing? Sorry, on a little bit of a sidetrack. Do you think it's amazing <laughs> the production quality we're seeing in TV these days? Hundred percent. Yeah. We're seeing the kind of production quality we used to only be able to see on on the big screen, and now it's coming to Netflix and those kind of streaming services. Don't you think it's amazing that it's finally on TV? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's a really amazing thing because of the fact that now we have these streaming services. Uh, you no longer have to have one TV package that covers a bunch of channels, of which you would probably only watch one or two. Um, instead, you know, it's kind of like scrap all those channels. Uh, we are going to pay for the ones that we actually use um, and kind of the result of that is uh, we have these providers who have capital uh, they have you know a, a massive base of, uh, of monthly users who are, are putting in good good subscriptions um, obviously we've seen Apple has introduced theirs as well um, and it'll be interesting to see the content that comes out of uh, out of that club too but I think I think definitely in terms of improving the quality of television that we're seeing I think uh, now that we've switched to the streaming world I I think it's definitely made a difference um, and and we certainly spend a lot of our time on on Netflix um, so I completely agree there um, in terms of the the thing that actually made me put this one down on stuff I found interesting there is an episode I think it's episode three of this season three um, which actually covers the Aberfan disaster in Wales now I had never heard of this before um, but it is yeah neither have I Absolutely, absolutely tragic. I mean, essentially, a small town in Wales, um, which was, uh, you know, kind of a mining town, had a massive coal heap. And, uh, and basically, uh, as a result of excessive rains, 
there were 144 deaths, um, which, which uh, I mean, of which 116 were children. Um, so essentially, a lot of a lot of rain. I think in the in the episode they kind of make allusions to um, government not doing their part um, in in this heap becoming too big, um, you know, having too much of a risk. And essentially, there was a collapse, and all of this coal basically flattened, uh, you know, various uh, housing blocks and uh, most importantly the school. Um, which was, uh, you know, kind of at the bottom of this village. And essentially, this episode, as I said, uh, heart, heart, really heartbreaking um, in terms of what these people have gone through. Um, and uh, yeah, just something I hadn't heard of. I mean, this is something that happened in 1966, uh, you know, not that long ago. Um, something that I found really interesting is is when they were kind of going through the research and, uh, and you know, putting together this episode, they essentially came, went to the village, of course, and got people who were actually there when it happened um, and, and kind of oh, wow. got their perspectives as well. I think really important is, is uh, in all these articles I've read uh, from the makers, they really tried to uh, go about this quite delicately. Um, of course, it's still raw. And so the thing that I, I found, uh, you know, quite on, on the lighter side is uh, they actually provided counseling to a lot of these people. And a lot of these people have not had counseling for the past 53 years. And it's still very wow. raw. I mean, having to uh, having to stand at a funeral and looking at uh, sort of, I think, I think the biggest uh, burial that there was. Um, I mean, it's one scene where you've got literally 80 odd graves of little children um, standing in front of you is uh, yeah, absolutely tragic. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's really good that uh, that the makers are not just sort of profiting out of uh, making entertainment out of this, but are actually putting back in terms of uh, providing real good counselling, which uh, should have really been there for for a while. That is that is fascinating, and and I think I think that's what art can do, right? Art can open these opportunities to build community and to right wrongs of the past. And so while while it's a very, like, as long as you do it tactfully, like you say, and as long as you do yeah. it with, with grace and with humility, um, hopefully this helps the people that were affected and can kind of give some sort of closure to the whole, the whole thing, which sounds, sounds traumatic. Yeah. And I think, I think it's also, I mean, it, I think it, it has a really positive effect, um, the fact that they did decide to bring this into the series because, you know, now this, uh, basically the world are, are, are asking about this event that, uh, you know, a lot of people haven't heard of. Um, and, uh, you know, just in terms of how do we make sure that these types of things don't happen again, um, you know, in terms of in terms of kind of natural type of disasters, but where, you know, you can you can put into place some remedial action ahead of time. Um, it's done a good for society, um, I think, for them to add this into 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 the series. Also, one thing that I thought really I found really interesting was the crisis that this was for the monarchy. Um, so a natural disaster um, basically turned political, really, um, in terms of, as I said, all of the parties, the party of the day, um, and specifically uh, the queen and uh, how the people, you know, expect the queen to react and, uh, and you know, what, what they kind of expect of their queen. So the queen actually didn't arrive until eight days had passed, um, you know, since the event. And based on this episode, uh, it, you know, it sounded like a lot of people had to kind of prompt and uh, and essentially threaten um you know political kind of uh, what's the word um unrest before uh, you know she actually made an appearance um but yeah very i mean a very difficult situation i think and uh, and certainly the suggestion that they give at the end end of the episode which is that this is one of the queen's biggest regrets um in her tenure 
um, you know, not having gone there until eight days had passed since the tragedy. So, yeah, I mean, I would certainly, uh, on, on a sort of larger note, I would highly recommend watching The Crown. I think it's a fascinating series in terms of the entertainment value as well as the educational value. Um, obviously, you know, the, the, the royal family and the, the monarchy are a very uh, kind of unique uh, system. And uh, and I think it's really good to get a slight peek as you know, behind the doors as to as to what actually goes on around there. So shall we move on to our next one? Let's do it. Let's do it. Looking ahead. Alrighty, so um, this is something that I've been talking a lot about in the last couple of months. And so I thought it'd be a great opportunity to bring it up. In a lot of my a lot of my trips, I've I've taken quite a few financial trips. So taking bankers overseas and looking at what does the future of financial services look like, and one of the trends that we've been seeing is that when banks are looking at the future, a lot of their competitors are not going to be banks, right? We're seeing a lot of other companies getting into financial services and getting into the financial system in a really big way. So for example, Apple released their first their, their credit card recently. Google are looking into checking accounts. You've got Libra, which is like the pseudo cryptocurrency that Facebook and others yeah. are, are putting together. You've got Uber Money. You've got Starbucks, who's got this giant cash liability in, on their balance because of the all the points that people are racking up. Yeah. And so what you're seeing is you're seeing these large tech companies coming into traditional financial services and scaring the pants off these big banks who are worried about losing their power, right? Previously, all the transactions were kind of monopolized by big financial banks. And uh, we're seeing now that if you provide a better user experience with a better brand, with like some, some sort of other incentives, people might be tempted to start moving out of traditional financial services and into these kind of tech giants. Yeah. Obviously, that's going to take a long time. And a lot of these tech guys are working with traditional financial service providers to make that transition happen. 100%. But I, I was curious to hear your thoughts, Chad, on what do you think the future of this looks like? Do you see a future where you don't have an account with a bank, but you have a Facebook balance with Facebook money in it? Um, and what did that future look like for you? Yeah, so I mean... To touch on our, our conversation last week, I mean, this is this is really worrying for, for kind of all of those concerned about privacy and, and that kind of thing. For me, I'm, I'm definitely stuck in the past uh, in terms of uh, traditional banks. However, that said, uh, in the UK and in London, there are loads of, uh, you know, fintech companies who are kind of challenging the the status quo of what uh, you know a normal bank uh, means and, and and what it does and and its and its function um and so i've definitely switched over to those sorts of entities but do i think i would be merging my social account with uh, a bank balance i don't think so to be honest i mean if we look at the the, the google the google and the and the, the apple example um so i believe they've teamed up with with goldman sachs um they've got a consumer arm which was released uh, i think it was actually last year kind of early bit of last year if not the the, the tail end of the year before um called marcus so where, where i basically saw this come about is in london obviously given the extremely low inflation rate um it's really hard to get money market type uh, interest returns um on on uh, you know investments um i mean in south africa you know your inflation rate is incredibly high and i think just on a on a sort of mo- money market type account it wouldn't be uh, unusual to see sort of returns of of 10 percent now what marcus did is uh, they, they came out and uh, advertised returns of one and a half percent and believe it or not 
that is sort of the highest <laughs> on uh, on a money market basis. Um, so yeah, interesting for me that Google and Apple are, are teaming up with them. Uh, I think, as you said, in terms of the reasons uh, you know that they're partnering up with uh, some of these established banks is certainly uh, regulation. I mean, I think the the, the concerns for uh, you know bank regulators are a, a gap in financial oversight. Uh, you know, having come from a from a sort of banking articles experience, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's, it's something that is changing very, very fast. And the technology, as always, is way ahead of the regulation, right? Yeah. So I've been fortunate enough to see banking systems in a number of different countries. So I've got an interesting perspective on what it looks like on a global perspective. So if we look at Singapore as an example, Singapore is really leading the game when it comes to this regulation. In the last 12 months, I must get the number right, I think they've awarded 17 new banking licenses wow. in the last 12 months, wow. which is unheard of, right? Like normally these things are one or two a year, if that. Yeah. Um, and so Singapore, their, their approach is basically saying, we can become a sandbox. You come to Singapore, you test out your stuff. We see how it interacts in a Singaporean landscape. And then once you've got it figured out, then you export to the rest of Asia and the rest of the world. So that's one example of a, of a, a country trying to let the regulation go a little bit and let it be a little bit looser. Yep. We look at other places like, say, the States or even South Africa where it's very, very tight. There's a lot less room for innovation in that, in that perspective. And so people are trying to do things outside of traditional regulation. Yep. So there's pros and cons to each of those, those scenarios. Um, I think that the whole cryptocurrency boom is kind of caused a little bit of mud in the water as well because a lot of yep. people get confused between what crypto is and what like fintech innovation is and they're not yep. always the same thing and they're often not the same thing so regulating cryptocurrency is very different to regulating a digital bank for example so i think that that distinction needs to be more clearly demarcated especially in regulation um and i think that for comp for countries that are looking to push innovation and they, they want to be the next new york or the next london or the next hong kong they're going to have to take some risk when it comes to that and like you say like you don't, you're not going to know the implications of that that risk until 20, 30, 40 years down the line. Definitely. So I think it's very interesting to watch. I don't know what the right answer is, but what I do know for certain is that the financial system in 50 years' time is going to look very different to today's. Yep. Um, and how are we going to get there? I'm not sure. Just out of interest, I mean, while we're on this topic, um, is Apple Pay and Google Pay and kind of Garmin Pay and all of those kinds of things, are they now beginning to be accepted in South Africa? I think what's interesting about South Africa is that, that I think we were one of the first countries to have tap and go on our credit cards in the first place, yep. right? So all of those all of those payment mechanisms are available. And as far as I know, some merchants do use them. But um, tap and go has been happening here for the last five or six years. Yep. And so like, when I went to the States and it's still very, very new, I was a bit surprised because it felt like <laughs> I've been having it for five or six years. Yep. So when you've got tap and go on your credit card, there is no need, there's no real need for consumer to switch to an Apple Pay or a Samsung Pay just yet. Sure. So that's why I think it hasn't taken off in a big way here. Um, also, I think the brand strength here is a little bit weaker than some other places around the world where if you're an Apple fanatic, you want to go and pay with Apple Pay and whatnot. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think the fact that South Africa had tap-and-go credit cards so early in the game um, really kind of killed, not killed, but slowed down the progress of Samsung Pay and all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. What about in London? What do you see in London? Well, yeah, I mean, to, to talk about the benefit of having a, a card versus versus phone scenario, I, I definitely, I mean, myself personally, uh, find Apple Pay to be extremely compelling, especially when you've got public transport. I mean, who wants to, you know, yeah. take out their wallet, take out another card, um, when you can literally just 
the phone's already in your hand. Uh, quickly double double tap a button, and uh, you know, obviously authenticated via th- fingerprint or, or your face or whatever the case is, and you through you through the gantry and 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 that kind of thing. So I mean, certainly moving over from SA to here, I definitely saw very quickly that uh, you know it's, it's it's quite a bit more advanced, especially in terms of the the, the fintechs. Um, so you know the, the sort of startups. I mean, already already here, you know, I don't want to kind of leave any out, but uh, you know, we've got some some fairly big ones, uh, Monzo which has actually got a fully-fledged banking license. Uh, we've got Starling, uh, Revolut. Uh, these are basically all digital banks that are you know, completely saying no to the, the sort of model of having having actual you know, outlets where you can go in and, and do your banking. Um, and uh, you know, on the sort of back of that, they give you extra, extra flexibility. I mean, certainly for, for traveling, uh, you know, one, of, one of these apps, for example, uh, you know, lets you hold multiple currencies at one given uh, moment you then get analytics on your spending on each of these currencies uh, they, i mean there's one that that can even automatically pick up your location and uh, when you're out of the country activate a travel insurance policy um, so we're definitely wow. seeing some, some some you know some great innovation happening this side um, and uh, it's certainly going to be interesting to see uh, to see where it goes to from here i think something that i that I saw that was a little bit concerning, um, just to, to go back to our, our discussion last week, um, is the possibility that a Google bank or a sort of Facebook bank, I'm, I'm just calling them that, um, would give them an extra layer of information um, in terms of how effective their ad campaigns are in terms of click-through and ultimately uh, you know, finalizing that purchase. I mean, do you, do you think they will actually be using this information um, or do you think this is, uh, this is us again uh, looking too deeply into this no you're, you're spot on that's exactly the reason they're doing it right their 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 game is using as much data as possible to target those ads as best as they can so it's that's the reason they're doing it whether they whether the regulations are going to allow for it or whether they're going to have to put some sort of chinese wall in place or they're going to try and find some way to to avoid it um, what it does is it gives these big tech giants another chance to establish their monopoly and make it very hard for a newcomer to, to compete, right? If you've got the, the banking information, the social, social information, your location data, etc., you, you know this person backwards. So it's, it's a very, very tricky one. Um, it's obviously, as you say, it's very convenient for the user and it makes your life a bit easier. Um, and that's again, it's again what we said about last time. It's like the user yeah. experience versus the privacy that you're, that you're giving up. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's interesting to see where they go with it. Um, first of all, it's going to be interesting to see if they can succeed, right? Just because they open up these products doesn't mean there's going to be mass adoption and they're still going to have to prove it in the marketplace. But if one of these things goes, goes huge and gets some sort of network effect behind it and really becomes a powerful player it's going to really terrify the rest of the banks and terrify the regulators because it's going to be something in completely new territory. I mean, in terms of that mind shift, how long do you think it would take for people like me who are thinking a little bit more uh, traditionally? I mean, I say I'm thinking traditionally, but I have switched over to these fintech companies. For me, the, the next step being, uh, as you say, having a sort of Facebook or Google uh, bank account as well. I mean, how long do you think that lag would take? And do you do you think uh, you know the banks should be worried? Uh, certainly in the next couple of years, or do you think it's it's a longer term question? 
I think it's a longer term question. I think that people are often opt- over optimistic about how quickly these things change. Yep. When you're talking about people's money, it's one of the one of the parts of their life that they are most conservative about. They are most resistant to change. Right? If you're going to change your messaging app, you'll change in an instant. If you're going to yep. change your social platform, you'll change in an instant. Right? Your money is 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 very very dear and very important to people, and so it takes a while to change that behavior. That yep. being said, if you look at the millennial generation, the generation that we're a part of, we tend to change much quicker than our parents did. Yep. And so you wonder if the generation after us, if they grow up with this fintech and they grow up not having those preconceived ideas as to what a bank actually looks like, they might be the ones that drive that change. And we might be the old fogies sitting there thinking, why are these kids giving up all of this information, right? Yep. Um, and so I think it's, it's not our generation that's going to be the one that comes after us. And what kind of banking systems do they grow up in? And how does that sh- shape the way they think about their money? I think the other thing here is, uh, I mean, what does that actually mean for your credit record? I mean, traditionally, basically, the longer you stayed at a at a bank, uh, you know, you seem to be more reliable and to be more trustworthy. Um, do you think we'll maybe see some some changes here um, with all of these quick switches and uh, and as you say, increasingly becoming uh, you know less uh, less jump, you know, kind of less cautious of jumping? Do you think we'll see? changes in, in, in something as, as important to consumers as a credit record? I think so. And I think we're seeing that shift already. A, a lot of the big fintechs that I've managed to meet with over the last couple of months are in the credit space. And all of them are trying to unlock new ways to assess someone's credit. So how do you use yeah. new data? How do you use other data? Previously, you use your, your proof of residence, your pay slip, your kind of traditional documents that prove a certain thing about you. Yep. Um, I've seen a lot of companies that are trying to do weird and wonderful things with all sorts of data when it comes to your emails or the way you message or the way you handle your phone or the way you drive and yada, yada, yada. Yep. So I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in this space, especially as there's still a huge portion of the world who's not in the traditional financial system because they don't have those stable paychecks or they don't have the documentation or they don't have access to a certain banking infrastructure. Yeah. So I think that the, the way of assessing credit has to change to keep up with the world and keep up with how people are moving from job to job and bank to bank and yada, yada, yada. And so there's lots of opportunity in that space to become a third-party provider to gather that data, analyze it, assess it, and then provide some sort of rating that a financial institution can take seriously. Yep. So I think we're going to see a lot of change there, um, lots of innovation I'm seeing in the space, and so I'm quite excited about that as an opportunity. Um, and we'll have to see what that does when it comes to how banks think about their consumers. Fascinating. Must be absolutely fascinating being in that space and actually seeing seeing how, how, how it's changing and, and all of the new opportunities that uh, people are actually grabbing by the horns. Um, so yeah, I mean, if that if that sounds like you, certainly get in touch with Barry because um, he's, you know, he's, he's definitely in the space and has, uh, has great information on that. Um, should we move on to the next one? Let's do it. Develop and grow. So our, ne- our next one is develop and grow, and uh, we're looking at two things that I'm going to take. I'm going to take very very short on. Basically, I'm trying to use my own advice against myself and make public account make com- public <laughs> accountability my thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> Um, basically, I, as mentioned in the last episode, I'm slowly moving into the field of artificial intelligence, and I've been coming at it from a non-technical perspective, so working in ethics and policy work and that kind of stuff. Um, but what I've seen is that in order to have the right impact or the amount of impact that I want to have, I need to build some technical fundamentals. Basically, I need to learn to code. 
Um, and so what I've been trying to do is trying to find ways of learning to code in my free time that is hopefully going to give me enough fundamental understanding to be able to have an intelligent conversation. I'm right. not really expecting to compete with the guys who've been coding since they were four years old because they, I'm never <laughs> going to catch them. But, at least, but at, least, at least to learn some basic things so that I can have an intelligent conversation and understand what is possible in this world. 100%. So in doing that, I, ca I came across this project which is called Hashtag 100 Days of Code. And it's really, really simple. What you do is you go into your Twitter account and you announce, cool, I am going to start 100 days of code. And what you have to do then is for every single day after that, so up to 100, you try and do one, you don't try, you do one hour <laughs> of coding that day, right? Wow. And so the idea is, is just try and build a habit. And what you do is after, that, after you've done that hour, you go back onto Twitter and you tweet with the hashtag and you say, cool, I did this course and I did this lecture or I coded this piece of this project or whatever the story is. You just right. tell the world what you coded. And what's been really cool is that there's a community built around that hashtag. Amazing. And so you'll get messages from all around the world congratulating you, supporting you, and helping you on that journey of learning to code. Amazing. So I started this thing before I went traveling. I did about 14 or 15 days then. Then I went traveling and lost it completely, <laughs> which I'm, <laughs> that's why I'm trying to bring it up again. All about um, those so setting up those systems for, for next year. <laughs> exactly. I didn't. I didn't set up the systems when I was traveling, so yeah. I, that's why I'm using my own advice against myself here, and that's why I'm bringing it up. So I'm I'm planning to to get started again, and I think I'm on day 15 or 16 somewhere around there. Awesome. So if you'd like to follow along, please follow me on Twitter and come join. And if you want to join me doing it, I'd love to have some some fellow coders in the room. Um, so if you are going to join, uh, let me know. Amazing. Um, just just to confirm, what is what is that Twitter handle again? <laughs> it's at Barry Maurice. B A R R Y M O R I S S E. I mean, and then just in terms of of kind of the the framework you're setting yourself here. I mean, there's so many different programming languages. I know, I know, you know, programming logic is is typically generic. Um, you know, you've got loops, you've got arrays, and and I think kind of getting to know all of those types of things will definitely be useful in all platforms. But uh, does 100 days of code specify a programming language? Um, you know, what is the kind of main one we're seeing on the community? Yeah, so the quickest way to not finishing 100 days of code is spending the first 21 days debating what language to start in, right? <laughs> so what they say is what they say that is that, like you say, the principles are what matters. So yeah. the actual principles of what coding looks like is what matters. The syntax or the language you use doesn't matter, right? So th the key thing for me is just start in whatever language right. comes to you first or whatever you find that works for you. Obviously, think a bit about what you want to accomplish. So if you're looking to make websites, maybe HTML and CSS is a better place to start. Yeah. If you look at machine learning like I am it's often Python and those kind of languages but just pick one honestly just pick one it doesn't matter at this stage what you're trying to do in the first hundred days is build those principles and get an understanding of what coding looks like and how to think about creating creating programs a lot of it is pure problem solving and logic right yeah. so that that learning is transferable beyond just code so even if I finish 100 days of code and I never do another day of coding in my life, the work of just thinking about how a coder thinks about a problem is yeah. valuable. 100%. So I'm starting in Python, but please just pick one and go. Don't don't take forever debating it. It really doesn't matter at this stage. Awesome. I mean, yeah, definitely if you want to follow Barry along on that journey or even join in, I think that would be great to see uh, listeners getting involved in as well.
well. And uh, I mean, I think yeah, in in today's uh, you know in today's world, I think coding is is fun- fundamental really for anyone who is kind of even even the slightest bit entrepreneurial in their thinking. I think as you say, just knowing the realm of possibility in terms of you know what you can, what types of programs you could make, even if that's not your your goal now to you know come up with something, you might at some stage get to a point in life where you realize there's there's something missing and something that you could add to the world and i think having that ability and that that logical way of uh, of putting together um you know a, a program that that could solve that um i think this is a a, a very kind of noble quest and i think it, it's going to just better civilization as well so everyone definitely get involved in hashtag 100 days of code then the next one uh, this is quite a bold one barry oh geez okay i so i I put this down again with trying to force some public accountability on myself right so social media i have a serious love-hate relationship with it it (laughs) is um it is to credit for a lot of the opportunities that i've been lucky enough to have in the last couple years by being able to share all my stuff and communicate to people all around the world about things that i'm interested in I found tremendous value in it, and uh, I think it's a fantastic platform. On the other side of the coin, I often I can also find myself becoming addicted to it and spending way too much time scrolling through unnecessary stuff. Yeah. Um, and so what I've what I've done for the last two years is I've taken the whole of December off of social media. Wow. And what I mean by that is deleting the apps off of my phone and only go, only posting things that I've scheduled. So for example, a blog post that I want to publish or a podcast episode or something like that. So I've got scheduled stuff that happens during December. Right. But when it comes to my daily scrolling, I'm, I'm trying to stay away from it. I, I, I first did this two years ago and uh, it was a really, really tough month because <laughs> I become really addicted to it. Yeah. And uh, I would find myself reaching for my phone and tapping on where the Facebook app used to be and it just wasn't there. And I'd be like, <laughs> A bit terrified by how by how like habitual it had become, yep. and so that kind of showed me that um, maybe it's maybe it's worth it taking a little bit of a break every now and then. And December for me is that time because a lot of it stuff is very quiet. All my friends go away. It's kind of a, a kind of a chilled month, yep. and so I'm hoping to do that again this year. Take December off social media and just kind of spend some more time reading and thinking and creating stuff rather than just consuming all of the time. Obviously, it's a little bit ironic because we are talking to you and you probably found this podcast through social media. (laughs) So so I I understand the irony and I understand the, 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 the hypocrisy here. So what I'm saying is, Come onto social media, listen to the across the pond, and then switch it off. <laughs> oh, fair enough, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think we've seen we've seen this research that uh, suggests you know an endless fascination with with social media has, has got negative effects on um, how you see yourself. Basically, comparing yourself to people uh, you know who are posting those highlight shots from their life. Uh, you know that is not the sort of true and realistic um, representation of what their life looks like. It's just what they choose to share. Um, so I think that can only be a healthy uh, healthy break. And uh, I definitely wish you luck there. I, I haven't done a month of uh, no social media myself <laughs> ever. <laughs> I, I, I think it's, it's an experiment that's worth running. It doesn't have to be a month, but if you can find, a lot of people do like say one day a week. So they'll say Sundays, yeah. they turn it off completely, or you start with a week or you start with a few days. Take it easy at the beginning. But what I think you'll find is when you give it a go and you get through that, that two or three day period where you keep going back and you realize, oh, it's not there, you'll find that there's a lot of benefit to it and so we have to be we have to think more carefully about how we use these tools 
and understand that everything in moderation it's that it's that old saying everything in yeah. moderation yeah. they are supremely powerful and they give you so much connection to the world Definitely. but at the same time if you're spending too much time on that you're not actually living in the presence um, yeah. and so for anyone who is feeling like they're on their phone too much I'd recommend try a few days try one day try a week whatever it takes for you and just put those apps away and kind of live your life in the present and see what you feel like and then make a decision based on that yeah, I mean, I, th- I think I think the the introduction of the screen time feature on uh, on Apple systems has definitely been healthy in kind of just making us aware of the hours and hours we spend on these platforms. I mean, it's it's sort of it's an infinite scroll at the end of the day. I mean, you you really, of course, there's algorithms to to you know kind of. Um, position which ones you'll find uh, more enjoyable at the top but I mean it certainly does start to feel at some point like uh, like an, a task like it's something on your to-do list you know you kind of have to look through each of these stories um, and I mean I've had it on occasions where you kind of start to get to the end of that top vertical story list um, and when you go back to the beginning the first three or four people who, uh, you know, you're watching their stories, there's more posts there again. Um, and so it's this kind of overwhelming um, workload, if you'd like, that you can kind of never get through. And I think uh, I think taking a taking a break of that and uh, and really removing that from your, your priority list of things to do um, is, is certainly refreshing. Shall we move on to the next one? Yeah, this one's all yours, Chad. What's on your mind? Cool. So as we mentioned in week one, this is our basically our, our section of the podcast where we look onto the listener and really look at what's on everyone's mind. So we received a voice note for this one. Uh, let's let's quickly give it a play. Hey, so my question of the day would be, should you be buying Christmas presents for mates? Right. Uh, so that was Jean-Marc <laughs> who sent that through. Um, to be honest, Barry... Uh, I, this is quite an unethical move on my part, but uh, I'm conflicted on this one because I'm actually friends with uh, Jean-Marc. So I'm going to pass this one on Ooh. to you. What do you think? <laughs> I was hoping you were. I was hoping you weren't going to do that. I was hoping you were going to answer the question first. <laughs> huh. Okay, so I I feel like a terrible human being, right? I'm really yeah. bad with gifts. I'm really, all my friends and family will know. I forget. It's their birthday for the first part. I'm very uncreative when I'm thinking of gifts. <laughs> I often end up running around the day before trying to find something. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, I'm not, I'm not a gift giving person, right? So sure. I'm not, when you look at the love languages, I'm not a gift giving or receiving person. I don't really care about gifts, yeah. but I know that people in my life care about it. So I, I think that for me is the thing. If your mate, if that, if that shows how you care for that guy or how you, how you, um, how you love that person, yeah. then that makes sense. Definitely. And then I think it's worth doing it because that's a fantastic um, kind of gesture. But I've got a lot of friends who would find it weird if I gave them a Christmas present. So <laughs> I think it's I think it's a case by case basis. For sure. me, I kind of I kind of default to the no gift. I kind of yeah. save Christmas gifts for my my immediate family and and a partner, whatever the story is. Um, but if you've got mates who who really care about that and it really makes a difference to them, then I think it's worth it. So yeah. what are you going to do for Jean? I mean, yeah, I th- <laughs> putting me on the spot there. <laughs> putting me on the spot there. I mean, I think I think one thing that's that's important is. Uh, you know every relationship kind of sets up its own sort of boundaries and the the way that that things work and so how i look at it is if in the last three four five years you haven't given each other other gifts why change that up you know um (laughs) however if there is that level of um you know tradition or as we would call 
again, I'm, I'm sorry to throw in another accounting joke, a sort of constructive, <laughs> a, a constructive obligation, um, <laughs> i.e. an obligation that arises as a result of you, you know, having done things in the past, then I, I certainly would, would, you know, do that again and, and kind of honor that obligation if you'd like. But I, I certainly think, I certainly think if you are bought a gift, uh, by your friend, I think it's only you know common courtesy to return it. Um, but yeah, and then certainly if you if you're doing a, a kind of Christmas function uh, with friends, um, I think in that sort of occasion I would definitely bring something small along as well. Um, so yeah, thanks for your question, Jay. Oh, sorry, Barry, did you have something to add there? Yeah, just one more idea is to support the function. Yeah. Secret Santa is a lot of fun, right? So if you also get a true. few mates together, you do a Secret Santa. Yep. It's a great way of just buying one gift. Not if you spend on everybody, but you have that's a really right. fun night out and you get to get your, all your friends together and that's always a lot of fun. So yeah. if all else fails, Secret Santa, get your 12 guys together and do it that yeah. way. Secret Santa is always a great idea. Thanks for bringing that up. I, I, I forgot about that one. Um, I mean, I've seen lots of offices as well getting involved on the Secret Santa game. And that that one that becomes even more hilarious because uh, there's that added dynamic of, you know, let's be appropriate with our work colleagues. And some of the <laughs> gifts that I saw come about, uh, certainly at, uh, at one of my previous workplaces were, you know, that was absolutely hilarious. Um, so, you know, I would, I would definitely encourage uh, getting involved in that as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that brings us to the end of episode two. Uh, how, how was that? That was great. I, I had a lot of fun. I hope that uh, the, the listeners enjoyed it. I think we covered yeah. a lot of topics today. Um, and so really chuffed that went. Amazing. I mean, I think what we can say that we, we didn't know this time last week, let's say, is the, the platforms that we're, we're publishing it on. So we've decided to go through Anchor as our sort of main platform. Uh, publishing platform so basically um, Anchor gives us a bit of extra functionality if you would like to ask us a question I would uh, definitely encourage you to send through a voice note which you can do through that Anchor app Um, and uh, basically on the back of that uh, Anchor publishes to all major platforms obviously we've we've kind of just started this podcast so a lot of them are still busy being registered Um, but the sort of most two common ones uh, that we're really looking for is Spotify which is up and live um, and then Apple Podcasts Podcasts, which uh, should still take a few days, but hopefully we'll, we'll we'll come up there. And then, of course, for the video feed, YouTube as well. So, if you'd like to see this podcast in uh, its video glory, definitely check us out there. And uh, and yeah, I mean, even if you want to just see the bloopers, uh, I don't think there were too many this time, but uh, certainly certainly last week there were a couple that we've added along there. <laughs> Yeah, the, 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 I think if you want to see Chad trying to give back his Christmas presents, then wait for the <laughs> But Amazing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's episode two. Uh, we're definitely looking forward to the next one again. And please subscribe. Um, of course, as Barry said, uh, you know, we, we have been sharing this on our social medias. But given the uh, drought that's coming along in December, you won't be seeing much <laughs> of that from Barry. So hit subscribe to make sure you actually don't miss an episode. Um, and we'll definitely be grateful for that. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Chad. And thanks for listening, guys. Uh, look forward to seeing you guys next week. Awesome. Thanks, Barry. Uh, Again, that was Barry Maurice tuned in via Skype from uh, Johannesburg. I'm Chad Sturley, and thanks for listening to Across the Pond. Pond, 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 pond,